Okay, good evening, everybody. Again, a very special thank you to Isaac and Michal and Sam and everyone else for setting things up and getting the whole spread together. Very special thank you to Torah Anytime for sharing this year with those of you who cannot be here this evening. The, uh, the subject this evening is emotional responsibility, taking ownership of our emotional state. Usually the way it works in life is that we grow up, right? Kids want to stay kids for as long as possible, but eventually, for most of us, we do get older, and that's almost an automatic process. We grow taller, we get bigger, and uh, that's what life is. We go through our teens, and then our young adulthood, and then we're officially adults, and then eventually we're older adults, and then we're really old adults. That's pretty much it. Everything works automatically, except for the emotional progression. It's very possible that someone could be 57 years old and have the emotional capacity of a seven-year-old. And unfortunately, you know, we, we see this not so, uh, not so uncommon, but it's a very sad thing to see. We could be achieving, we could be high achievers in so many areas of life, academically, financially, people respect me for all of my other accomplishments, but when it comes to the, the essence of who I am, my emotional makeup, I could be a toddler. Emotional mastery is probably the greatest accomplishment that any human being could strive for. To gain a control over all of the kochos nefesh, all of our midos, all of our character traits, having a mastery of when to use different midos and how to use them. There's a famous uh, pasuk in Mishlei, Shlomo HaMelech writes, Tov erech megibor, that it's better to have patience, to hold yourself back. That takes more strength than a warrior. Umoshel burucho milochet ir. And one who could be moshel burucho, which means I could have control, I can contain my ruach, my spirit, my passion. That takes more strength and courage than one who can conquer an entire city. And the Malbim explains very beautifully, he says, we know there are different types of enemies. Usually we think about external enemies, the people outside, Iran, terrorism, people who have evil intent who are trying to harm us. However, the Pasig and Mishli is telling us, have to worry about those guys also. But the Iker Milchama, the main point of conflict in all of our lives, is my Oive Panimi, the internal enemies. What are those internal enemies? They're all of my different midos pulling me in different directions, trying to somehow gain control over who I am as a person. The Malbim elaborates, ki ruach doma ki'ir mivtsar. One's ruach is almost like a fortified city. And if you're able to take control over your ruach, over your spirit, over your emotions, then, You've conquered that city. 
And that takes more strength than conquering the enemies outside of you. Trying to have control and containment over who I am inside, that's real gavura. That's real courage. It's a beautiful tefillah expressed by David HaMelech. Where he turns to Hashem and he says, Listen to my song. I'm so downtrodden. I need you, Hashem. Literally, that means, Save me from those people or those forces that are pursuing me. Because they're stronger than I am. Naturally speaking, I can't overcome those forces. I need your help, Hashem. Release me from the bounds of my neshama. Somehow unshackle me from my limitations. For what purpose? I just want to be able to praise and sing to you. So what is David referring to? Hatzileni meirodfai ki omtsu mimeni. Save me from those who are pursuing me. Some explain he's not referring to the outside external enemies, but he's referring to his own midos, his internal struggle. Ki omtsu mimeni. Really, they're stronger than I am. I, I need your assistance over here to really take control over myself and therefore to have control over my life. Release me from these limitations because I want to be free. Free in the ultimate sense that I have nothing within me keeping me down. So emotional mastery is really the greatest achievement we could strive for. I think it happens to be that when we look at others, and we look at others all the time, and although we might consider ourselves non-judgmental, being honest with ourselves, we're always judging. We're always evaluating. In the Yiddish expression, we're always touching people up. We're always placing them in different categories. If the true definition of gavura, of strength and real accomplishment, is based on a person fighting his inner turmoils, fighting and going against the grain of what's natural, so then when I'm looking at you from the outside, I really have no clue who you are. I don't really know what's really difficult in your life. Well, she is dressing like that, you know, and people who really care about God would not wear that. It might be a valid observation, but to, to just discount someone based on something so external, not that dress is, is worthless. We've spoken about that in the past, how we conduct ourselves, how we behave. All of those things can make a big difference on who we are and how we feel about ourselves. But to touch someone, to define them based on little things that I happen to notice, not knowing their inner struggles, not knowing how much of a gavra, how much of a warrior they are, is crazy. So I think this perception is helpful with ourselves, clarifying what's the ikr melchama, what's our main battlefield in life. And it's also helpful in just take a big, big deep breath. Don't have to look down at people that have no clue what's going on in the real battlefield of their inner world. Uh, the Sefer Kuzari, that was authored by Rabbi Huda Halevi, going back to the beginning of the 1100s. And in the Sefer, we know there's a whole storyline, the conversation that the king of the Kuzars is having 
with a philosopher and a Christian theologian and also a rabbi. And the whole back and forth between the rabbi and the king of the Khuzars in the very beginning of the third chapter of the Khuzari, the, uh, the king turns to the rabbi and says, do me a favor, paint for me a picture of what a righteous man looks like through the lens of the Torah. Right? How, would you, how would you envision a chassid, someone who's really a special person? So the rabbi says back to the, the king, Hanizhar b'medinaso, one who is careful with his country. He's careful with his country. Misharim machalik lecholan asheha tarpam v'chosipkam he distributes the proper rations to everyone within the land. And he treats them with justice. I have to just give a quick shout out to Aryeh Baum. Aryeh, welcome. Quick round of applause for Aryeh. Welcome. He doesn't take advantage of any one of the people living there. Nor will he give someone more than they deserve. Everything is distributed with, with erlichkeit. He's honest. He's fair. That's our picture of the righteous man. So the king says back to the rabbi, I, I wasn't asking about what leadership looks like. I wasn't asking you to give me a good image of, of the prince of the, of the, the province. Give me a picture of a chassid, of a righteous man. And the rabbi says back, my good friend, the king. I'm not talking about actually being in control of a country. I'm not referring to being in charge of people and giving out food. I'm talking about an individual. But that's the mushal. That's like the paradigm of what it means to be a chassid. To be truly righteous is that I have control over my own kingdom, over my own midos. Mastery, control of emotion equals chassidus. That equals righteousness. <clears throat> I read a line from a teenage girl who was a camper at Camp Simcha. Just curious, by a show of hands, who here has heard of Camp Simcha? Okay, Baruch Hashem. Camp Simcha is a high, li- a high lifeline program where basically every year for a couple weeks in the summer, they have this unbelievable camp really geared towards children with very severe illness. And they have a week for girls and a week for boys. So there is a teenage girl who suffered from hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which basically means half of her heart was not functioning. Right? That's how she lived her life. And she said the following line, after really enjoying her experience in, in camp and feeling a sense of independence, she said, power is not about being in control of others, but it's being in control of your own actions and how you influence others. That's power. I'm not sure if she realized this, but she was Machave, and she had in mind exactly what the Kuzari is telling us. And this is exactly what Shlomo HaMelech is teaching us. It's all about Moshel Beruach. Am I in control of myself? Now, this doesn't just mean restraining or keeping myself in check. It's much broader than that. Emotional responsibility is... I'm able to tap into a whole range of emotions depending on the call of the hour. 
Right? Sometimes we go into a situation where this is a tragic case, and people are devastated. And it's, and it's sometimes hard to, to allow yourself to just get into that zone, to feel that pain. There's almost a part of us that wants to keep a distance. I don't want to allow myself to get that, that raw in, in, my, in my emotion. I don't want to allow myself to break down. And we see the opposite extreme as well. We might be in, in a beautiful simcha. We're celebrating a bris of a child who was born after 14 years of marriage. And there's singing and there's dancing. And I'm into it because I'm so happy for the, the mother and the father. But there's almost part of me that I'm restraining myself because getting too emotional in any direction is sometimes uncomfortable. Pele Yoetz writes, and here I think we have our working guideline for being Moshe Buruach, having control of emotions throughout the whole spectrum of emotion. Sarach Adam Leo Sholet Barucho, we have to have control over our feelings. Lehis Atsev Kishiyirtza, that when I want to feel down and I want to feel the sorrow of the moment, I'm able to get there. And when I want to rejoice and I want to just really get into the high positive energy, I could get there also. Here's a very important line. The two shall not mix together. When it's a zman simcha, when it's time for dancing and joy, I'm not going to allow all the other things going on in my life to bring me down. And when it's a time of avelos and his atzvos, this is a time of such sorrow and, 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 and depression. I'm going to feel it. I'm not going to stop myself from, from experiencing that either. Everything has its place. Sometimes life becomes more complicated and there's a call of more sophistication. Sometimes we're trying to tap into both joy and 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 atzvos and sadness at the same time. Sometimes outwardly we're crying, but inwardly we should be besimcha. What's an example of that? Kagon Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's an example where maybe outwardly we're crying because we're, we're trying to feel the, the awesomeness of the moment and trying to uh, uh, allow ourselves to get into the reality of what's happening. But at the same time, my heart is jumping for joy because I'm so happy to be here and having this opportunity. Dover be'ito mato. But the Pelayoetz concludes... Having a mastery over your feelings, a mastery of your emotions means I could do anything, I could feel anything in the right place, in the right time. <coughs> now where this becomes most difficult is when we're dealing not with friends and acquaintances or extended family, although extended family could be you know, a challenge as well. But the most difficult time to have real control over ourselves, to be Moshe Berucho, is with close family. That's the hardest. Three reasons for that. The first is we're most vulnerable. I'm most open with you, more so than anyone else, and therefore 
I can get more hurt by what you have to say. I care more about what you have to say. The second reason is there's a feeling of maybe I don't have control outside of my house, but at least in my home, this is not supposed to be happening. In my family, I can't believe there's this level of dysfunction. I can't believe this is what life is. I, this, this can't happen. I think the third reason why it's so hard is because there's nobody outside that I need to impress. Right? So we're more vulnerable, we're more open with close family. If it's a spouse, if it's a child, we have more of a sense that things should be different, that I should have more control. This is my territory, this is my turf. And last but not least, we don't have to impress anybody because it's just my husband, it's just my wife, these are just my kids. There's a letter, though, from the Imre Emes. Who was the Imre Emes? He was the son of the Svas Emes. Svas Emes being one of the great Hasidic leaders of Ger. The Imre Emes, Rav Ram Mordechai Alter, he, uh, he writes in a letter, a letter discussing Shalom bias. This is source number five. He speaks about the way to achieve peace and harmony in the home is the Gvoa Bekirbo Midos Tovos, try to instill within ourselves the positive character traits, Ayin Tova, Nefeshvela, Ruach Nemucha, to be generous, to judge other people in a, in a positive way, to allow myself to, to let things go, Ruach Nemucha is that I don't have to be on top of everything, I don't have to be in control of everything that happens in my home, and if certain things are not to my liking, I don't have to lose it. Leos onov eitzel beso, and to become a humble person in my interactions and my conversations with the people in my own home. And then he quotes a ton of the Beiliyohu, teachings going back all the way to Eliyohu Anavi. Havi olov adam. We strive to be humble with all people. Ula anche but people in your home, with your mishpacha, with your family, with your wife, with your children, yoser mikol adam. We try to be even more humble, more of an onov, more of a nefesh fela with our family than with anybody else outside. It's the hardest place to actually accomplish that, but it's the most important place. Rav Aryeh Levine was known as the tzaddik of Yerushalayim. And he would have vadim, he would have groups where he would speak about different topics. And one time he was giving a group on shalom bias and trying to really maintain and enhance a sense of harmony and love within the house. So amongst the group here in Yerushalayim that were sitting in the shul with Rav Ari Levin was Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer. Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer, one of the Ge'one Hador, one of the greatest of his time. He was the father-in-law of Rav Aaron Cutler. And he was one of the, the men sitting in that Chaburah, listening to the words of wisdom from Rav Aaron Levin. And he was focusing on how to, how to deal with, uh, with machlokis. When we're debating something, we have a difference of opinion. Right, so often we have to put our foot down. If it's with children, right, zero tolerance. If it's with a spouse, this is not okay. How do we deal with, with a difference of opinion? 
And he was going on and elaborating and talking about that. At the end of the Vad, Rabbi Isra Zalman Meltzer came over to Bari Levit and he said, I have a complaint. What? You know that I, I do have some, some struggles in, in my marriage. And uh, I try my best. I know there's so many areas I have to be and I have to work on, I have to fix myself, and that's why I learn Musa every day. Okay, but, but you know that I struggle. But to bring it up in public like this, to, to let everybody here know that I'm having these issues in my marriage, why'd you have to do that? And if Arya Levine was floored, do you really think I was speaking about you? <laughs> do you really think I was talking about your, your relationship? <laughs> And, and, and he thought he was. Isser Zalman Meltzer thought that Rav Ari Levine was talking about his relationship because in the mind, and the perception of Rav Ari Levine, he viewed his marriage as having some issues. He's trying to work on, but he has issues. Who is he married to? Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer was married to Bela Hinda, the daughter of the great Revival Frank. Bela Hinda was not just your average Rebetzin, but in the famous Sefer that Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer authored, the Evan Hazel, who wrote every single word of that Sefer? His beloved wife. They worked together hand in hand. Anyone who saw that marriage, who had any exposure to that marriage, would say, they there are the most brilliant, beautiful, loving couple. But yet in the mind of, of Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer, there's still many things I need to work on. That story brings me a whole lot of nechama. That gives me a nice sense of comfort, right? Even if the greatest tzaddik can feel that, yeah, we do have some, uh, some sechsuch, you know, some issues in the marriage, and we have to work on it. I think that gives us a lot of nechama. But that's the hardest area, that's the hardest arena to really have uh, a mastery over our emotions. When it comes to leadership, and that's leadership in any area of life, having control over your feelings and your moods is even more essential. So for example, if I'm in any position where I'm guiding, instructing, or giving advice to others, and that could be in a business setting, that could be in a family setting, that could be in a teaching setting, if, if I can't get over my own issues, if I'm so trapped within my own world and my own frailties, so the odds of me really seeing life through your prism and being madrich you and giving you guidance and eitzah hogenis lo, something that's really good for you, the odds are very unlikely. If I can't get out of myself, if I can't put my own issues aside, if I can't see things clearly, so how can I help others? How can I really feel your pain if I'm so trapped within my own pain? So for leadership, Having control over your own emotions is even more essential. I think another aspect is that when it comes to leadership, we all know that much more than what we say or how we say it, it's who we are. Who we are will have the biggest influence on anyone within our sphere of influence. It's who I am. Now, obviously, there are techniques and communication and how to get the message across and how to say things, what to say, what not to say. Those are all important. But ultimately, real hashbah, real influence, is not based on what I say. It's based on who I am. 
So leadership requires a shlita, a level of control over ourselves to really be effective. When Moshe Rabbeinu was asking Hashem to appoint the next leader of Klal Yisrael, so he was asking, Kodesh Baruch please, we don't want Klal Yisrael to be like a flock without a shepherd. And Hashem says back to Moshe, Kach lechaz Yeshua ben Nun, take Yeshua, Ish asher ruach bo. What's the quality of Yeshua? Why am I designating him as the next manhig, the next leader of Klal Yisrael? Because he's a man that has ruach within him. He has ruach within him. Explains Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the great mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva. Ruach bo means Moshel Berucho. He's a man that has control over himself. And therefore, Kaddish Baruch Hu was telling Moshe, he's a leader for Klal Yisrael. He could control himself. He could, he could have a mastery over his emotions. He's the man we need. He could feel the pain of others. He could guide them without bias, without his own personal agenda. He could see them and not be judgmental. That's the leader we need for Klal Yisrael. Here's an example. You're, uh, we don't have many good elevators here in Boca, right? The highest building you'll have is like a six or seven story building, if that. But let's say you're visiting Manhattan and you're in an elevator going up 57 floors with five other people. And somewhere between floor 23 and 24, it just stops and it goes pitch black. And you're just standing there with five strangers in the pitch black elevator. What's your response? Think about it for a moment. What do you do? I'd venture to say that the way you feel will probably very much be influenced by the way other people feel and express their feelings. So for example, right here's scenario one. Elevator stops, goes pitch black, can't hear anything, and there's a guy standing next to me and he says, Oh man, I have an appointment in five minutes. This happened to me a few weeks ago. I was in a different building. This is such a hassle. The elevators around Manhattan really need to be fixed. This is crazy. People have appointments. They have to, they have to be on time. And then someone else chimes in. Yeah, this is really annoying. Hopefully they'll be here soon. Are you hyperventilating right now? No, not so much. Scenario two, right? The lady standing right next to you starts screaming, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die. There's not enough oxygen inside her to last one three minutes. And then everyone starts screaming, oh my gosh. What do you do then, right? Okay, whatever, hopefully it'll be here soon. Likely you're gonna start freaking out also. That's the way it works. We're very influenced by other people's emotions. What's the psychological term for this? Emotional contagion. Right? It's contagious. It's infectious. The way you're feeling and the way you're expressing it has a massive impact on how I feel. I want to show you an article here. This is from U.S. World and News Report going back to 2016 entitled, Are You Catching Other People's Emotions? Emotions can be transmitted more easily than colds or flus. Research has found that upbeat emotions such as enthusiasm and joy, as well as negative ones, including sadness, fear, and anger, 
are easily passed from one person to another person. Emotional contagion occurs in a matter of milliseconds, and it depends on an incredibly basic, even primitive instinct. During conversation, human beings naturally tend to mimic their companions' facial expressions, posture, body language, and speech rhythms without being consciously aware of it. So as you're speaking to me, I'm actually imitating you. I'm mimicking you subconsciously. The muscle fibers in your face and body can be activated unbeknownst to you. Those incremental muscle movements then trigger the actual feeling in the brain. So if I see you, that you're frowning, that you look super stressed or depressed, I begin to make those same movements in my face without even realizing it. And as I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on the, the face of being overwhelmed, then I start feeling overwhelmed. Because we know in the most biological sense, chetsonius bareres haponemius, the outer expression awakens the inner feeling. <clears throat> the degree of which people become emotionally in sync with each other depends partly on the level of intimacy in their relationship. So obviously the closer our relationship, the more I'm going to be mimicking you and the more you're going to be copying me. There was a study in, in 2014 out of the University of California, San Diego, or San Francisco rather, where mother's level of stress was actually experienced by their infants. The infant who does not know anything in a conscious realm, they pick up on those vibes and they are negatively impacted by the mother's stress. Even loneliness can be contagious. That's ironic, right? Catching loneliness. Yes, they're sharing a drink called loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Right? Rav Baruch Yoel. Generally, people don't mind getting swept up in another person's excitement, enthusiasm, or good cheer. On the other hand, few of us want to be soaking up someone else's unpleasant moods or negativity as if we were sponges. So there's something about emotion being contagious. Now, we don't need research really to verify this. I think we, we all feel it in our own lives. I remember when I was in elementary school, so I used to play after school on the yard for a good couple of hours. Those were my heroic days of pretending to be Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. I'm dating myself a little bit over here. But I'd play for hours after school with my friends, and then my mother would pick me up. And after a couple times, it was probably the third grade, I told my mother, and she reminds me of this until today, when I got in the car, she said, oh, hi, Noah. I said, Ma, do me a favor. When you pick me up, can you smile more? <laughs> I was impacted by the fact that she wasn't smiling enough. So I was able to express that. But, but this, our mood, our behavior, whether or not we're smiling or how much we're actually giving off that sense of joy, we feel it. When a spouse is in a good mood, when, when your kid is in a good mood, it's so much easier to be happy. When your spouse is suffering, even if you're not really feeling their pain, you're not having the, the ideal empathy for their situation, but the fact that they're unhappy makes it very difficult for you to be happy because that's just not the environment. Emotions are contagious. So there are two takeaways from this reality. The first is what an awesome responsibility we have with our own emotions. 
the first part of our conversation was Moshe Barucho. The goal is to have some level of control over our feelings. But now we're realizing that's not just about me and my Avodah Hashem. It's not just Bein Odom La'atmo or Bein Odom L'chavero. It's about me and other people around me. It's Bein Odom L'chavero because the way I feel will have an impact on the way you feel. So it's an awesome responsibility. I think the second takeaway is somewhat scary. We realize how susceptible we are to people's emotions. I don't want to be sucking up negativity. I don't want to be forced to feel stressed or anxious. So question number one I'd like to explore is, what exactly is the obligation of passing along positive emotion and trying to avoid infecting someone with negative emotion? And then issue number two I'd like to explore is how can we keep ourselves protected from other people's negative emotions? How do we do that? Is there a mitzvah anywhere in the Torah, ideally somewhere in this week's Parsha, that tells us, yes, we are responsible for the way we feel. This reality of emotions being contagious is actually expressed in a mitzvah. Pasuk says, and the Pasha Shoftim. This is the, the pep talk before going into battle after the Kohen gives his words of Chizik. The officials now address the nation, the people about to enter into Milchamo. The man who's standing here, anyone who's afraid, who has uh, the weakness of heart, do not continue standing here with your brothers. Go home. We don't want you here. Do not melt the heart of your brothers like your heart. So if you're afraid you're not allowed to stay here, go home, not because we're so concerned about you, but rather, Lo yimas es levav echav kilvavo. We don't want you to infect the other soldiers to start feeling a sense of fear like you feel. There's a famous debate here between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yossi Aglili. The fear that we're talking about, does that mean one's just afraid to go into battle? You're seeing how fierce that army looks with their swords drawn and it's really impacting you? And that's the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Yossi Aglili tells us in the Mishnah and Sota, no, it means a person who's afraid based on his averos, based on his sins, that maybe he will not be Zoha to, to stay alive in the, in the dangers of war. But either way, it's very clear. If you're afraid, go home. We don't want you to impact anybody else standing next to you. Comes along the Ramban. And the Ramban quotes from the Bahag, one of the earliest Svarim that has a formulation of the mitzvos. The Bahag writes, from this Pasuk we learn a mitzvah lo say one of the 613 mitzvos in the Torah. Shaloyim nami loshov, shaloyimas es echav kilvavo, that you should not hold yourself back from returning home. Rather, make sure to leave so you don't impact others. And explains with Chaim Shmulevitz, this is not limited to standing on the edge of a battlefield. This is talking about every area in human interaction. If you're going to impact somebody negative, 
do everything you possibly can not to. Right? I'm not feeling inspired right now. So obviously it might be healthy for me to have a conversation with somebody and to really speak about how I'm feeling. On the other hand, for me to go around to as many people as possible and try to also get them to feel uninspired because that would give me more of a sense of, of comfort, so that's not the right thing to do. You actually have a mitzvah not to do that. Don't infect other people. We quoted before the story from Shlomo Hoffman. He was one of the great uh, masters of psychology living at Eretz Yisrael when he told over his experience learning with Rav Isaac Sher from Slobodka that when he used to come in for his session, his lesson with Rav Isaac Sher, Rav Isaac Sher would always tell him at the time of Shlomo Hoffman was about 20-something, why are you sad? Lama ta'at seif. What do you mean? I'm not sad. I'm, I'm just, I'm coming to learn. So why aren't you smiling? Why aren't I smiling? I don't know. Shlomo Hoffman said that every time I would go and learn with the great of Isaac Sher, he would make me come in with a smile. And if I didn't, he would chastise me. And he would say, You're like a pit in the public thoroughfare. That when you go outside with a face like that, you're causing other people damage. You're going to infect others. You can't walk around like that. Smile! Not just for yourself, but smile for me. Smile for the other people you're being exposed to, or they're being exposed to you. So we can't impact people negatively. The Torah is telling us, according to the Bahag, we have to try our best not to. But the flip side of that coin is, we can also impact people positively. And therefore, logic would dictate, and Chaim Shmulevitz expands upon this point, that whenever we possibly can, bring a little bit of bitachon, a little bit of extra faith, a little bit of extra simcha to somebody else's day. It doesn't have to transform their lives forever, but this moment could be a little bit sweeter based on the way you're feeling and the way you're expressing it, that including in this, included in the mitzvah of lo yimas es levav echav, don't melt the heart of your brother, is also do as much as you possibly can to strengthen the heart of your brother. That's also a mitzvah. The famous Gemara in Tainus where it says that Rebroka was in the Shuk and he had this vision of Eliyahu Anavi and he wanted to know from Eliyahu out of all these people here, hundreds of people buying and selling and wheeling and dealing, who here will be B'nai Olam Haba? Who here will be Zoha to go to the world to come? So eventually he shows this person two brothers. Eliyahu says to Rebroka, these two brothers are going to the world to come. Famously, we know that Rebroka approaches them and asks them, what do you guys do? What's so special? And they answer back, We're clowns. We try to make people happy. We do backflips. We make poodles out of balloons. We do all sorts of fun things. And that's what we do for a living. We try to make people happy. Beautiful. That's what the Gemara says. Wonderful idea. Listen to Rashi. Rashi, when he explains the word beduchi, right, that they're gestures, they're clowns, he says, smechim umesamchim b'nei adam. They're happy, and they bring happiness to others. 
If I was Rashi, I would have just said simply, their job description is to be misamachim b'nei'odim, to make people happy. Why does Rashi first have to start off by saying smechim, they're happy? So I think it's clear from Rashi's explaining how were they so effective? How were they able to make people laugh and make people feel good about themselves and to give them a little bit more light on a gloomy day? It's not because the joke they were saying was so incredibly funny. It's not because the little poodle they made from the balloon was so cute. But it was because smechim, they were happy. When they were feeling it, they were radiating that simcha. That simcha is contagious. The Mishnah says, We have to try to greet everyone with simcha. The Svorno explains that when a person greets you with simcha, what's your reaction? How does it feel to be greeted with simcha? He says, I don't feel the burden. I don't feel any pressure. I think included in that is, I don't feel you're trying to put on a show or to just be pleasant because that's, what, that's what's considered nice. I remember, parenthetically, when I went to Michigan for the first time, right, middle America, a little exposure to Americans in middle America, I, I had this like eye-opening epiphany. I was brought up in LA. And in LA, you have a lot of wonderful people, but there's a lot more of the external, hey, how are you? So good to see you. A lot of that. You have some of that on the East Coast as well. New York is its own story. <laughs> but when I went to Middle America, my first thought was, hey, they're not as friendly. They're not as like outgoing. But then after meeting many, many different people from many walks of life, I had a whole new respect for Americans living in Middle America. They weren't as fake. They weren't as superficial. But they were the real deal. They really care. So the Sworn was saying, the way it feels when you greet me b'simcha is that I don't feel it's fake. I don't feel you're doing it because you want to get a mitzvah. Rather, he says, Tekabel b'sefer panam yofos be'ofen she'tekarvam la'avodas hakel. Your smile will almost want to make me come closer to God. That's what a smile could do. That sense of warmth, that simcha, that's really pouring out of your neshama because you're genuinely happy to see me, that could uplift me, that could raise my madrega. That could bring me to a level where I want to steig, I want to grow with my avodas Hashem. So yes, we do believe that emotions are contagious and therefore we have the responsibility Keep away. Don't spread negativity. And at the same time, when you have that positive love, share it. When you have the simcha, share it with as many people as you possibly can. How do we avoid being impacted by other people's negative emotions? It's a hard thing to do. I think the first step is a recognition that just because I'm feeling this way, it doesn't mean it's real. Once we know the concept that, yes, lo yimas levav echav, you can have an impact on me, so it's not going to bother me as much that I begin to feel a little bit down and gloomy because you're down and gloomy. I'm almost able to now look at it with a, a third-party perspective and tell myself, 
I don't have to fall into this. It might be natural. It might be just mimicking subconsciously. But I don't have to go in, the, in that direction. I can rise above it. Recognition, I think, is the first step in protecting ourselves from negativity around us. I think the second step, which is probably the most crucial, is are we living a life of victim or are we living a life of being the captain? And that's true for everything. Every level of Simcha Sechayim, it all comes down to that decision. Things are crazy, things are dysfunctional, no one's doing what I expected them or wanted them to do, therefore how do I feel? So if I allow nature to take its course, I'll just blend in with everybody else, I'll get sucked into the negativity, I'll get sucked into the stress, I'll be brought down by everyone else's feelings, I'm a victim to circumstance. I'm a victim to your, to your mood. But if we could rise above that, and if we could feel the achrayas of the mood, the responsibility of the feeling, of not just of myself, but of everyone in this room, that's on me! Why is that on me more than on you? It's on me if I could do something about it. If I could somehow uplift this chabura, this group, this family structure, this meeting at the office, if I can somehow get people in a better place, then I have the responsibility to do so. When we're playing the victim, then I'm, just, I'm constantly crumbling under the feelings and the emotions of others, and I don't have my own two legs to stand on. But if we take that idea of being Moshe Beruach, I have control over myself, I can fight whatever currents are out there trying to make me feel differently, and to the contrary, let me try to raise you up. Let me try to create a different atmosphere. We're approaching the Shloshim of Dr. Brian Galbit, Zecher Tzadik Levracha. And during the, the funeral, and during the Shiva, and speaking to many people, his sons and his father, an extremely special family, one, one Mida that I'm trying to, to take from myself personally I think it's something we can all benefit from, was his ability never to be the victim of any circumstance. He was able to infuse and create such a sense of excitement and love and mutual respect within his family unit. How did he do that? Because he made the choice to do that. And speaking to the boys, Ozzy and Sender, and they were telling me the, the whole idea of that he would learn with everybody, he would have a special time with each one of his children, and then they would do something fun together, and they would have a night activity. A night activity is a phrase you hear in camp, and then you forget about it forever, and then if you go back to camp, you hear it again. That's a night activity. But to bring a night activity into your own family, to create that kind of excitement and, and, and bond through having fun together, that's an amazing, very unique thing, but it only happened because he made the decision, this is what I want my life to look like. This is what I want my family to be functioning like. I don't have control over what you say or what you do. I don't have control over my spouse's mood at the present time, but I have control over myself. And if I utilize that, I tap into what I could be, I could change the dynamic here. I don't have to be brought down by it. I could uplift it. I could uplift those around me. So we have emotional maturity we can never take for granted. It's not something that happens by itself. 
It might be a difficult process, but it's the highest level that we could strive for. Now, we might not have mastery over every midah within ourselves, but every little step we take in that direction, every time I hold myself back from saying something that I really wanted to say, but I know I would have regretted, that's a win. Every time I push myself a little bit, and I, and I make sure to go out of my comfort zone, and I do try to raise the mood of myself and those around me, that's a win. We can never judge, it's not black and white. Any step forward in this realm of being Moshe Berucho is something we can never imagine how beautiful it is. When it comes to leadership, we said it's essential because in order for me to be there for you, I can't be stuck within myself. And the most influential aspect of any leadership role is not what we say, but who we are. Then we spoke about emotional contagion, the realization that the way I feel will impact you and vice versa. That means we're susceptible, but we can overcome and change the dynamic. And it also means we have a, a responsibility to change the dynamic. I want to leave you with one story. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, people are familiar with Rabbi Ari Rodin in Dallas, Texas? Some of you? So he's, uh, he's a, a legend in the field of Rabbanus. He's been out in Dallas, Texas now for decades. The, the way Dallas works, they have the South Eruv and the North Eruv, he's in the North. When he first moved and he had his shul in his, in his house, so his dream was to, uh, to build something one day, right? to build a shul. So in comes, he's about to give a class to adults, he's in the middle of preparing, and the fellow knocks on the door, his name is Leonard Fruman. Leonard is a middle-aged guy, and he says to the rabbi, I got your name from the kosher bakery. I want to learn a little bit. I wanted to find out more about Judaism. So they sit down together and they schmooze for an hour and a half or two hours. Leonard says, thank you so much. I appreciate everything you've done for me. I want to write you a check, give you something. I'm going to give you $2,000. That's very generous of you. You don't have to do that. I want to give you something. Okay. He gets a check in the mail for $3,000 a week or so later. Eventually, Leonard gets more into Judaism. He brings some friends in. And over the next couple of years, working together, they're able to be very influential in building a shul for Rabbi Rodin right, in northern Dallas. Unfortunately, Leonard suddenly passes away at 49 years old. He has a massive heart attack. At the funeral, because he was never married and he had no children, so his mother actually got up and she proclaimed, I will match every dollar my son pledged to the shul, to the synagogue. I want to make sure to do just as much as he did to keep his legacy alive and to keep this synagogue thriving. And the night of that funeral, she gave over $50,000 to Rabbi Rodin Shul. At the Shloshim, 30 days after Leonard passed away, Rabbi Rodin was speaking, and he shared the following incident. He said, how did Leonard find us in the first place? Here we are in the middle of nowhere. We don't have an established community. So the basic answer is that Leonard was in Eretz Yisrael for the first time. He was visiting Israel, and he went to the Kosel. He was davening by the wall. And he saw people were writing little notes and putting it in, so he did the same thing. 
and he saw to the right of him there is a, there is a chassid who is davening with such passion and such fire. And at that moment, he thought to himself, that's the real deal. This person is sincere. I would love to just support him and, and, and somehow make sure he could keep on doing what he's doing. But Leonard explained afterwards, I felt awkward right? going over to a complete stranger and offering him money. That's a strange thing to do. So I thought, when I come back home to Dallas, let me figure out where do they have other people like this guy and let me get involved. So I went to the kosher bakery and I said, where can I find the place where you have people who pray like I saw at the Western Wall? And the owner of the bakery said, go to Rabbi Rodenshul. He's a good guy. Okay. That was the beginning of our relationship. And that led to other people getting involved. That led to the building of the shul. That led to many families coming closer to Hashem and sending their children to yeshivas, transforming lives. What was the starting point of this whole chain of development? It was one guy davening with sincerity. Right? One guy going to the kosel, pouring his heart out to Hashem. That's what led to the inspiration of Leonard that led to everything else down the line. Rabbi Rodin said at the Shloshim, he says, can you imagine when this guy gets up to Shemayim and they're going to greet him with open arms, whatever his name is, right? David, look what you did. We want to show you all the blot Gemara you learned here in B'nai Brak. We are so proud of you. You accomplished so much. You're Messias Nefesh. And look at the shul you built in Dallas and all of these families of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren you made from. You're unbelievable, right? He probably would have said, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it, but I had nothing to do with Dallas. I never went to America in my life. And they would respond back to this fellow to the contrary. Because you daven mincha well, you change the world. Right? It's the idea that when we do things with sincerity, it is contagious. Negativity is the harissus habinion. It's the destruction of anything positive and any, any shorish, any root of growth. We have to stay as far away as we possibly can from being judgmental and negative. But to be positive, to do things with erlichkeit, to do things with bitachon, to feel a responsibility to uplift others because I can to take control over my life because I can, little tiny things will change us and will change the world. I'll go to Shabbos.